Uh, I, I was perfect the first time. Now I just uh, I have a no will. <laughs> it's done. All right. It looks like it's recording now. You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The Archaeology Podcast Network is sponsored by Codify, a California benefit corporation. Visit Codify at www.codifi.com. Hello and welcome to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 105 for March 1st, 2017. I'm your host, Chris Webster. On today's show, we talk about the side hustle, surviving in today's archaeology and staying for the future. So, go learn something, because the CRM Archaeology Podcast starts right now. Welcome to the show, everyone. Joining me today are Bill in Arizona. Good morning. Chris in Oregon. Hi. Doug in Scotland. Good evening. Steven in Calgary. Hello. All right, so on today's show, uh, as we mentioned in the introduction, we are talking about the side hustle. We're going to identify what that means. We're going to identify the problem. We're going to talk about how you can do a side hustle, what that even means for you uh, in the second segment. And then uh, and then we're going to talk about why we need to do a side hustle. We're going to get into a little bit in the first uh, segment as well, but I think we're going to try to do some problem solving on the other side of the, uh, the third segment. So, um, But first off, what the heck is a side hustle? What does that even mean? Um, I'm going to throw this over to Bill White in a second because he's been doing a lot of um, blogging and talking about this on social media. And um, it's uh, it really boils down to the fact that, uh, and I'm f- very fond of saying this, and I want to be corrected if people don't believe me but uh, or don't follow what I'm saying, um, is that archaeology, if you just come into it, I don't care what your job is. I don't care if you're a professional or, uh, you know, um, uh, commercial or whatever, uh, archaeology or where you're working, actually, where in the world you're working. Archaeology is not typically a nine to five Monday through Friday job where you're going to have 3.2 children and a white, pick, white picket fence and a house in the suburbs. Okay. Um, I just don't think that uh, it's really ever going to be that way. Now, for some people, it is that way. These people might be later in their career and they might have gotten lucky and found, you know, a solid, you know, regular job. Those are often government jobs. Uh, things like that. But um, if you're in the private sector, that's going to be really difficult. Uh, If you start your own company uh, and you think that's how you're going to get a nine to five job, good luck. Um, Working eight hours a day is a a dream that will never happen. So um, anyway, that's where we're at. That's where we're going. And that's what we're going to talk about. Um, we've got a lot of, a lot of comments on this and a lot of different experience levels across the board on this podcast today. So I think we're going to have a a pretty solid discussion. So Bill, why don't you kick it off and, and, uh, we have some links to some of the stuff you've been putting up in the show notes. So go check those out. But, uh, Bill, you put up a blog post lately and you and I have been talking about this for a long time and you've been actually blogging about kind of the side hustle and talked about it on this podcast a lot in the last couple of years. So Mm -hmm. So what are your thoughts on this to help kick off the discussion? Yeah, uh, this really comes from a blog post that I posted on February 16th called All Archaeologists Need a Side Hustle. So what I meant by the side hustle, uh, um, constant or contrary to what you might believe, it's not a dance. It's not, uh, I guess it is some kind of a dance, but you're not really moving your feet only unless your side hustle is dancing. <laughs> what I'm talking about is starting using your uh, your spare time, you know, the, the time that you usually sit around and um, binge watch Game of Thrones to actually do something that might bring some income into your life. So, you know, there's basically two different kinds of side hustles. Um, You can have something that uh, you actually have to invest some time. So, you know, becoming an Uber driver or pet sitting or something like that. Yeah. So there's two different kinds of side hustle that I identified, specifically things that you can do in your spare time that actually require you to do something. So getting a part-time job, you know, something like that. Or the one I advocate the most strongly is um, doing something that creates residual income. So doing something online uh, that creates um, uh, income while you sleep. So creating websites or apps or doing some other kind of um, uh, consulting, some kind of product that other people can buy and uh, that can generate some uh, some income. So that's really what I meant when I said uh, creating a side mm-hmm. hustle. Okay. Well, let's talk about why we need to do this. You know, what is the problem? I, I, I've done, um, I've done over sixty episodes of the uh, profiles in in CRM um, 
podcast, and I've got some data from that. But um, I think we'll go over to Doug real quick. Yeah, I think we should get this out of the way early in the podcast. And for listeners out there, what Bill is talking about is how to survive in archaeology as it currently is. Um, and it's not about how it, we want it to be. And I think that's something we're going to talk about in the third segment. But I remember, Bill, what was it, about two years ago, year and a half ago, um, this isn't the first time you've mentioned a, a side hustle in one of your blog posts. Um, there was one about archaeologists in a, a poor mentality. And uh, you got ripped into pretty heavily on uh, Twitter. Um, a lot of people took offense to the idea of needing a side hustle. And I understand that. Um, I think, really, it is a shame that we have to have a side hustle. Um, and I think we should talk about that in the third sec segment. But just for people who are listening, what we're really talking about is we're not agreeing that this is you know, how archaeology should be, but we're telling you this is how you can survive in archaeology. And I think this also goes back to some comments um, that have come up through different podcasts we've done. I remember when we were talking about CVs and stuff, and people got quite offended when I told people, you know, if you're if you're a woman or minority, don't put your first name on um, on your CV. And you know, some people understood that that's it's a it's an unfortunate thing. That's how you survive. Um, it's kind of like telling you, know, don't be black in front of cops. Like it's 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 one of those things. Unfortunately, that's what it is. And we're giving right now advice about how to deal with that. And hopefully later in this podcast, we'll talk about how you can possibly change that so we don't have to give this advice of having a side hustle. Nice. That's a good point, Doug. And I'm sure we will get into that. Um, and as I was starting to say uh, earlier, you know, a couple uh, people are, like you were alluding to, Doug, people are kind of pissed off that we even need to think about this because they're like, well, why, why can't I just be an archaeologist, do my job, and uh, get a paycheck, have benefits, go on vacation? Uh, have a family and do all those things? And that's a pretty good question. But unfortunately, nobody has answers to that, right? I mean, we have some answers on why that is now. But uh, as we'll talk about later, um, I'm not sure it's fixable um, because of the complexity of the problem. But that being said, there are some things you can do to help sort of mitigate it. But let's talk about the problem a little bit more because this is what really comes up in, in social media, especially on Facebook posts and things like that is is the problem and people often talk about as i mentioned in my profiles in crm podcast you know i always say what's the you know if you could fix one thing in crm archaeology what would it be and nearly everybody says um uh, i would uh i would have better pay and more benefits and more work and i'm like you know i was just commenting to somebody the other day on facebook and i was like uh you know as far as as far as more work and pay goes there isn't a single archaeology company out there. Um, let's let's leave aside the massive engineering firms for right now because they have different sort of budgeting things. But if you're talking about an archaeology firm, big or small, there isn't a single one where the owners or principals are out there driving, you know, brand new fleet of Teslas or Porsches or whatever your fancy car is of choice and living in a mansion because they're not paying you very well. They're taking all your money and just putting it into their own things. That's simply not happening. They're 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 often, you know, they're often a little better off than you are because they're more stable. They own the company. They do have steady work because everything that goes through that company comes through them as well. So there's that. But, um, and, and, and there are people that do very well and there are people that do, uh, that do screw employees. But I think on the, on the, in general, when we talk about averages, when we talk about the average employer, um, I think most people are just, I think they're honest and I think they're just trying to do right by their company. They want to stay alive. They want to survive. And there's another problem, too, and that's business training. None of them have it. So they try to run a company, they get these big projects, and they don't know how to do anything. Um, they just they just can't manage it. So anyway, um, I, I know you guys have some comments in the background there. I don't want to monopolize this. But uh, Doug, you said you do have answers, so let's have them because everybody wants to know. Wait, you want to take this <laughs> at this section right now, not wait to the well, end? Well, <laughs> at, okay. at the end, I think we want to talk about bigger – bigger uh, bigger like more um, systemic problems in like the field of environmental science I think we want to go bigger that way um, as far as you know talking about the problem right now I think we can we can tackle some some small things here I don't know there's no there's no oh, real but... format this is an NPR 
Okay, okay, mine's <laughs> big level stuff. All right, so if you look at how the CRM system is set up, it is essentially, and this is across most countries um, across the world. Uh, we're relatively new um, profession. You know, uh, some countries started in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s. Like there are some countries that have just started to get their first sort of CRM archaeologist. Um, and essentially, we're a bunch of small organizations. Now there'll be, you know, an archaeology unit in one of the large companies that do, you know, pipelines and you know internal consultants and stuff. But for the most part, in CRM across the world, unless it's um, there's a few countries where it's all government run, and so it's one entity, um, and they tend to have better pay. But essentially, you have a bunch of small organizations who are competing against each other. And this will either happen naturally, or you know, archaeologists need to go out there and, and start making this happen. But really, we need to consolidate. So there should not be half a dozen companies in one state. At most, there should maybe be two. And as soon as you consolidate, you're going to get rid of these issues of money. And then you're also going to get a lot. You're not going to totally get rid of them all, but you will be able to solve some of the issues of constant, you know, oh, I have a job for two weeks. Oh, I have it for a month. I move from company to company. Because the larger the company is, the more projects they have. And if you're good and they want to keep you on, they'll have projects to keep you on. Because let's face it, most employers, if you're an excellent field tech, they want to give you work. They want to keep you around. They don't want to go through the process of having to look through 200 CVs or resumes, mm -hmm. you know, conduct phone calls, all that stuff. It takes a lot of time. Um, so you really are looking at something like that. And then once also you consolidate, you're looking at unions. Unions have failed, but they fail pretty much because, you know, it takes a lot of work to get all the companies involved. Um, but archaeology anywhere in the world is actually one of the easiest professions to unionize in that we're location based. You can't, you can't send our jobs overseas you still physically need someone out somewhere surveying and excavating. Mm -hmm. um, so that's what you basically need is you need actually a lot of consolidation. That'll take care of issues of pay because then you'll be able to get a union. And it'll also take care of issues of undercutting because uh, there'll be less competition so people can raise rates. Um, and that's actually what you need to do to fix most of what people are talking about and issues with archaeology. Now, this is not going to fix every issue as well. Um, but I mean, usually when you get larger companies, you actually get an HR department. So mm -hmm. a lot of the issues with sexism, racism, any of the isms tend to go away because larger companies have someone there. I'm not saying this is a, a silver bullet for everything, but in general, larger companies will have more strict rules and clamp down or at least have someone you can go to. Like, it's really hard to talk to someone about, you know, um, about, you know, oh, you're being racist when it's actually the company owner because... There's only 10 people working in the company, um, and there's no one else you can go to. Let, let's comment on uh, on what you've said so far because there's a lot in there. Um, yeah. uh, first off, on the one hand, I, I agree with you that uh, that larger companies are actually kind of better for archaeology because they have better pay, they can afford the resources, they can use other departments to make up for the archaeology department or the cultural resources department when, when it has a slowdown, and that way people don't get laid off. You know, they have things to do. Um, and and they have you know they have income <laughs> because the rest of the company is helping pay for them. I get all that, um, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure in the long run that uh, that larger like if you had just a handful of large companies that they would solve all the problems because one of the one of the big things, especially regarding money, is most of these large companies are publicly traded, right? So publicly traded companies have shareholders, um, and they have these earnings calls every quarter, and they have all these things that they do. And if they're not increasing their, um, you know, their, their revenue every quarter, then their stock goes down. And if their stock goes down, then, then all, all hell breaks loose and, you know, they start losing people and now they have to lay off people and they have to lose whole divisions and blah, 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 blah. But the smaller hey, Chris, companies, they don't have that. They don't have that because they're not trading on the stock market. Chris, do you mind if I clarify? Go ahead. When I'm saying large companies, I'm actually talking about what would be mainly classified as small or medium size and mainly medium size. Because if you look at 
So in the UK, the largest archaeology company, there's a couple of them, but they range between about 250 and, you know, really good years, 350 employees. That's actually a pretty small company just pushing medium status. Mm -hmm. In the United States, I think the largest I've seen in numbers is maybe 100 archaeologists, maybe 150. Those are all considered small companies. And I'm not talking, when I'm talking large companies, I'm not talking about, you know, 10,000 archaeologists. I'm talking actually mainly about larger. Mm -hmm. And so in the sense that we need medium-sized companies, um, you know, and the couple of hundred people spread over two or three states with minimum competition. And of course, the other side of this is it's becoming more likely because you could get economics of scale if archaeology moves ahead with technology. So, Chris, I know you've talked about, um, you know, trying to do everything digital and stuff like that. But if you think about some of the, we still use a lot of the methods that we used, oh, you know, 50, 100 years ago. We still use a trowel, a shovel, mm -hmm. anything. Um, and if you progressively were, so the other side of this is you progressively have to have SHPOs or, you know, council archaeologists if you're in the UK saying, no, we want a higher level of technology, which means, you know, you have to go out and buy, I don't know, XLF um, scanner or, you know, all these other things and actually push up the level required and so that there's the investment. And so, unfortunately, this is actually going to probably piss off a lot of people is those sort of lone, you know, sole trader, independent people should actually be priced out of the market. And they should actually have to, you know, to become an archaeologist and start an archaeology company should cost, you know, half a million or a million dollars to buy the equipment you need, as opposed to you go down to Home Depot, pick up a shovel, a, a screen, and that's it. You're in business to become an archaeologist with a clipboard and a pencil, um, you know, you need to sort of, that's the other side of it. If if you really want to get this where not everyone should be able to be an archaeologist. And that actually means we'd have fewer people being archaeologists, but they'd probably be higher paid because there'd be hmm. a higher level of technology and specialism. Right. Um, so I'll shut up now and let other people <laughs> talk. Right. Well, we're going to go to break here soon. Um, but I, I will say that the, the, uh, um, the whole large company thing, if you're going to, I guess you're, you're right, Doug. You do have to qualify how you define large company. If you're defining it on employees, that's one thing. If you're defining it on the standards that, um, that like government contracting defines it on, uh, I believe it's $14 million uh, in a lot of cases. Sometimes it's like $9 million, and that's annual revenue. That's how they determine what a, where large company starts is over that um, price, which, which puts out probably 95% of archaeology companies, uh, at least in the United States. And then that leaves the massive engineering firms whose own archaeology departments are not actually putting doing that much revenue, but the whole company is, you know, like your Amec, Foster Wheeler, uh, HDR, um, you know, all the all the big companies that are um, that are out there. They have those kind of numbers because they have other departments. But let's pick this up on the other side of the break. Professional Certifications for Scientists, or PCS, aims to provide practical educational videos, field guides, knowledge tests professional certifications, and employment connections to professional scientists everywhere. Check out the jobs page for job listings in contract archaeology. Post a job for just $50. All of PCS's jobs are verified and checked for completeness. Find PCS jobs at www.pcscourses.com forward slash jobs. PCS, a place for good scientists to become great science professionals. All right. We're back. And uh, before we left, Stephen had a, a question uh, following up on some of the things we've talked about. So, Stephen, go ahead. Thanks. Um, and, and this is mostly directed at um, Doug's long uh, uh, narrative. <laughs> it, it, it strikes me that, you know, th this consolidation idea or, or many of these ideas that we have about how we can have more stable jobs or, or um, more stability in our jobs and, uh, you know, with greater pay and stuff like that. Um, this still kind of raises the specter of the sheer number of jobs or, or the lack of a number of jobs mm -hmm. that, you know, we are constantly, um, you know, as we always like to talk about, we are constantly churning out more people with degrees um, and, and, you know, developing that and, and streamlining, you know, 
more and more people with MAs or, or greater, um, th thanks to you know these professional development uh, programs and, and stuff like that. Um, and and it's you know we're also increasing our efficiencies, right? So you know we are um, streamlining the, the the data management process, you know, using using electronic tablets and drones and and stuff like that. So even though we're using you know more and more technology and, and being more and more tech technical, we um, you know, we're, we're basically increasing our efficiencies, um, and and that results in fewer jobs or shorter periods of employment. So, um, I, I guess it, maybe not a question so much as comment, but uh, or to phrase it as a question, it's like how do we, you know, deal with that then? If there are fewer jobs, that stability won't necessarily um, re result in. You know, jobs for everyone. Yeah, I'll just make a comment. There will be fewer jobs. Archaeology at the CRM archaeology at the moment is incredibly labor intensive. And everyone's like, oh, you know, robots are coming for jobs. But actually, robots could in theory replace some of what we do almost right now. Like so out west in the western United States, we essentially do pedestrian uh, survey which means it's a walkover. There's very little shuffle testing, if anything. You could literally send out a drone, record the ground, pop it into a computer, and you know do identification of artifacts. Because essentially, we're just walking along with our eyes and looking out there and saying, oh, you know, I see a piece of pottery. That looks like a flint. But you could program a computer to recognize those. I mean. We're only a couple of years away before that tech happens and someone figures out a way to do it. And I imagine actually someone else will figure out to do it in something else other than archaeology, but then it'll hit the market and archaeologists will use it. And that will literally mean almost no pedestrian survey other than sending one guy out, well, probably two for health and safety, with a drone to fly, you know, hundreds upon hundreds of miles. And that is an efficiency, but it means that there's going to be definitely fewer jobs. And, and the risk, real risk of that is everyone does the efficiency, there isn't consolidation, and basically we just cut out those jobs without, you know, raking in that benefit. So when you do an efficiency, there's more resources to go somewhere else. And unfortunately, we probably will just hand that, those resources back to our clients um, instead of keeping it for archaeologists. Um, that's, I suspect, would be happening, but maybe not. Maybe we do keep that. But there are going to be fewer and fewer archaeologists in the future doing CRM. That doesn't mean there's necessarily going to be fewer archaeologists. Um, you know, public archaeology is getting bigger and bigger. There are a lot of other things. I don't know, maybe we'll all become podcast stars and pay the bills that way. <laughs> hint, hint, Chris. Um, you know, yeah, right. But well, there are other things. It's just that I don't see a future where there's going to be a lot, a big increase in CRM jobs just because we're going to figure out ways to eliminate the labor. That's not necessarily a bad thing as long as those resources go into something else in archaeology, um, you know, and... Let's comment on that because I, I don't think any industry in the history of industries has ever, like, continuously uh, added jobs, except for maybe, like, restaurants because we all have to eat, right? So there's always new restaurants. But, um, you know, it, industries, they ramp up and they, they say, okay, look at this huge thing we're doing. Now we need all these people to help make it happen. And then somebody figures out a way to make it uh, more efficient. And then they start eliminating jobs because of that. Look at the auto industry. I mean, the auto industry employed so many people just 40 years ago. And now it's all robots, right? So um, it, it's that's the way it goes. And I'm, I'm actively trying to figure out ways to uh, – uh, I mean, I was just out last week out on some land um, trying to figure out ways to make drone survey actually work for pedestrian survey in the West, because I think it is the way to go. And I am all for uh, there being fewer jobs, because fewer jobs mean that the people that are left are actually the people that not only want to be there, but are the high-quality, high-end people. This is my hope anyway. Obviously, this doesn't always happen. But these are the people that are, you know, ready to um ready to perform you know they want to be there and we can weed out the people that are just here bitching and complaining and saying you know uh nobody loves me and i can't get any work well you know that might be true so go work somewhere else because there's 25 people behind you that are passionate about this and really want to do it and, and they understand what it takes um, chris 
that is not how life works. I know you, that's not how life works. <laughs> I understand. You do, not get rid of the, you do not get rid of the worst people. Those are usually the people that stay around. Um, but my point is... My point is with the right employers, they won't be able to stay around because if employers, if we start, if we start really supporting these people that want to employ really good people, you know, we support them online, we support them whenever we can. And we say, listen, that employer over there only hires really amazing people and, and they don't hire the people that just phone in their work that just come in every day and say, I'm going to do the minimum and then go home and, and drink a beer. They don't hire those kinds of people. So if we had more employers like that, then we could actually do this. And I understand it's all, you know, blue skies sort of uh, will never happen kind of stuff. But you have to have an ideal to strive for, right? You have to have some sort of benchmark to try to hit. Well, there's a serious uh, question about that. And, and Bill's been talking about that in the background about professionalization. So, Bill, I think this is a good point for you to define professionalization. And, uh, I mean, there are several examples of, of uh, regions where professionalization is – a standard practice so especially in the southwest so bill let's let's hear what professionalization is and how it works yeah um the last time i talked about professionalization though um somebody found me at a conference uh and then i think they lured me with a beer and then ripped me in half because they said that uh my ideal of professionalization was ridiculous and that that would mean that people end up spending you know a third of their lives in order to get qualified and all this stuff. But um, following along with what Chris was saying, uh, and I think, uh, Doug, you also are familiar with this, in the Southwest, the bar is is like, you know, dizzyingly high to uh, work here. And uh, you don't really see a whole bunch of job posts. If you see a job post on archaeology fieldwork for a position in Arizona, then you should actually really question it and try to think about why they would even be doing that. Because um, both the universities here, uh, Arizona State, uh, while well, all three of the main state universities crank out a lot of high quality uh, um, people who graduate, the professors are you know, on target when it comes to archaeology. And within the state of Arizona, there's a huge network of people who um, know each other, and they're really only looking for people who actually have experience in Arizona. And in New Mexico, it's even worse. Like you have to have experience in certain parts of New Mexico. And that that also, I mean, that's even going to the tech level. So if you're, if you're a tech and you just think you're going to hop in your um, car and drive to Arizona and then just hand your resume in, uh, I'll be the first one to tell you that that's going to be really hard. You're not going to get hired because you don't know anything about Arizona. And so they're really looking for people who have experience in Arizona, different parts. It matters. Prehistory, historical. I mean, they're really particular. And it's, it's a similar situation in New Mexico. So New Mexico State and the University of New Mexico, they do a really good job with uh, archaeology. And so in those zones, you have to not only have education, you have mm -hmm. to have experience. And to get to like the project management stage where everybody really wants to be because that's where you have the best odds of having a stable job, um, you got to have like I, – I can't even remember. The Arizona State Museum – is the one that hands out the survey and the excavation permits uh, on public land, so that's state and federal land. Um, and like to be, each project has to have a principal investigator that has, I mean, it, I, it's not, I don't think codified specifically in law, but it's understood that you will have um, 10 years of experience, basically, a PhD, and will have done like a 640 acre survey or like a 20 mile linear survey that you have from research design, proposal, and reporting done pretty much as the main author. There's, you know, that pretty much sets it up so that many of the professors in the state of Arizona can't even get an ASM permit. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have to be dedicated and have been here for a long time in order for you to get to be a principal investigator on a project. And so the, the survey permit is handed to the PI or the company, and each company has like maybe one person that qualifies to do that kind of stuff. Um, so as a result, uh, the situation is exactly what you're talking about. The people who make it in Arizona are the ones that are dedicated. They probably went to school here. They got education here. They know a whole bunch of people here. Um, they like uh, talk amongst the community when they need a new job. Uh, companies hire people from other companies because it's too risky to trust someone out of left field to do Arizona work because 
There's no guarantee you're going to know the specific nuances of the area. Now, that's what I'm talking about as far as professionalization. Uh, it's it's pretty hard to just get in your truck and drive from uh, Nebraska and do a project in Arizona that the state museum is going to accept. Now, on private land, that's a different story. You can get away with it on private land, but you're still going to have to follow all the rules. It's just like all the other states. And really, that's how these other um, Walmart companies can come and do any work in Arizona. But if you're working for the government, it's going to be someone who knows about the state. And I would like to see that kind of stuff happen in every single state so that, you know, you got to know New Hampshire archaeology. Otherwise, you aren't going to get any kind of work there. That's how you uh, can increase wages. That's how you can have some kind of stability. And it does weed out a lot of people. And you're right. There's not a lot of jobs in archaeology in those areas. But vast swaths of the United States do not have that kind of coverage. So uh, if they instilled that in other places, I think that we might be able to come closer to achieving what we're talking about. Hey, Bill, so you're thinking of professionalism as basically a way to keep fewer people from being archaeologists. Is that correct? Or requiring no. a higher, higher threshold of entry, be it years or months of experience? The goal is to provide stable jobs, right, for people, so maybe they don't have to do side hustles. And I think being a specialist or hyper-specialized in a certain area so that you're the only one that possibly can do the work or you're part of a handful of individuals that can do the work, I mean, I think, isn't that the goal to have stable jobs? I mean, some of these companies here, people have been here 35 years, uh, and you know, some of them like teach at universities on the side or have courses and stuff. They they publish peer-reviewed journal articles from CRM reports here. So, like, so, yeah, they're increasing the quality of the work that's done, but um, there are stable jobs in Arizona if you can get in. Okay, because that's – so it's, it's a matter of terminology because what you're talking about is more of a guild or entry system, whereas the definition of professionalism, professionalism which has sort of been set out by a lot of different things, is the standards that people work to. So when we talk about professionalism, we would say, um, oh, and you dig, you know, your test pits in one by one meter squares because that's the standard. Um, and that sort of a level of professionalism is not about who does it. It's about what it's done to and not so much about the experience. So like when uh, CIFA in the UK talks about it, or RPA talks about professionalism, um, they're talking more about the standards of work rather than who can do it. Um, just just to say that like, so that people don't get confused by the different terminology. Um, professionalism is something slightly different than what you're discussing, but I think your point of, you know, making it a little harder and raising the quality of people who can, who can be an archeologist is a good point. Yeah, and I think uh, there's a lot of good points that all of you have had, uh, Stephen and Doug, about, you know, especially there being the inevitability of less jobs in archaeology is is a problem. But there's also, I think, we've identified a need for less jobs in archaeology, or at least a need to raise the bar. And it's a complex issue that we're talking about because there's, you know, top-heavy, massive CRM firms or, you know, massive environmental firms that have CRM departments attached to them, uh, you know, that are bloated with, you know, all sorts of admin and overhead and, and people billing to projects that shouldn't be billing to those projects. You know, and then there's the issue from the the field tech or crew chief or even middle manager level of, you know, how do we get better pay? How do we get stability? How do we get benefits? All of that. And a lot of the points that Bill was talking about in leading to professionalization and professionalism requires a side hustle. And so sometimes that side hustle isn't going to be archaeology, but uh, Doug, I, th I think you had alluded to uh, public archaeology. I think that public archaeology is an important side hustle that you know not only develops us professionally as as individuals, but also advances the field and does important outreach, you know as is our obligation as professionals, you know, but, uh, in the beginning of this episode, Bill had, uh, mentioned a few 
examples of, of side hustle. And some of those are, you know, ways to do passive income or ways to kind of bring it back around to uh, what our, our main goal is. And, you know, I think in the last episode of the CRM, uh, Stephen had, had mentioned that a lot of professional and personal goals change over time. And so that that's another, you know, thing that adds complexity to what we're what mm -hmm. we're dealing with is sometimes our our end goal is going to shift as well. And so our side hustle needs to be something that develops us um, that is both a generalist strategy, but also something that, you know, gives us specific skills that make us more adaptable. And, you know, building on what Bill said about uh, about the culture of, you know, professionalism in the Southwest, um, people down there know that, you know, in order to in order to be in somebody's head when a project is is starting, they have to make an impression, and they make an impression, uh, as has been alluded to, by how they work, what they know, what they can get done, and who they are. Um, you know, whether or not they're a, honestly, whether or not they're a likable person. Uh, how much, how many skills do they have? You know, can they get the job done with with minimal bitching? You know, if 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 these companies aren't going to use prop, uh, you know, job posting services, and they're going to use their own network because they have the people to do that then just by default, the employees working for those companies, especially new people, have to level up their skills. And I say level up all the time, um, and I've got called out for it on Facebook, <laughs> but it's a great term. You know, everybody knows what that means. Leveling up means making yourself better. You know, it's a gamification uh, uh, word. So I think part of your side hustle can be actually not just um, – not just you know working at a department store, although you can gain valuable skills no matter where you go if you see it that way. But um, I think part of your side hustle should be helping you level up so you can do maybe less side hustle as you uh, as you progress throughout your career. But I think we're gonna um, you know ap apologies to uh, the the introduction, but we're gonna end up making probably a lot of the third segment here um, the next podcast, which will be talking about really fixing some of these problems and, and I, uh, really identifying them and, and coming up with solutions to some of the problems in CRM archaeology. But for now, um, we're going to go to break. And on the other side, hopefully we can, we can give you some ideas on how to actually do a side hustle and, uh, and break the suspense you've been waiting for for um, over 40 minutes now. So <laughs> we'll be back in just a minute. But first, part of, the, uh, part of leveling yourself up is listening to this next ad from Heritage Business International. And it's not an ad. They don't pay us. This is a partnership because they have really good information and business tips for people wanting to, um, wanting to help level up their own business acumen. Back in a minute. Hi, everyone. This is Christopher Dorr with Heritage Business International. And here's this week's Heritage Business Tip from the Archive. This week, we look at an important point about responsibility, profitability, and time management. Delegate to the lowest level of competency. If you don't have to do something, don't. Especially with billable work, push it down into the organization. Regardless of your level in your organization, part, and a big part, of your job is keeping those whom you supervise productive, busy, and billable. To receive our most up-to-date Heritage Business Tip, you can subscribe to our free weekly email at heritagebusiness.org. Until next time, this is Christopher Dorr. Okay, we are back for the final segment, and as I alluded to before the break, um, I, I want to actually talk about some side hustle stuff. Bill's got some good ideas. Um, I've talked about a lot of stuff online. I'm sure the other guys have some some things that they've done or or ideas that they have. But you know, uh, one of the things that um, I I talked about right at the very beginning of this show was understanding what type of field that we're in, and and really what that means. So if you're a field tech and you don't work in the Southwest. Um, I say that because the Southwest, a lot of areas down there, you can work largely year-round in some places. Um, in some places in the West, Southern California, a lot of these places you can kind of work year-round. Um, now, construction in these in the winter months does tend to slow down 
even when weather's nice. I'm not really sure why that is, but it's just contracts and the way things work. Um, government contracts definitely slow down because their funding picks back up in the summertime, and then they have this flurry of activity, and you know, there's all kinds of little reasons for it. But generally, um, if you're getting into archaeology or you're in archaeology, then you understand that in the winter, just about everywhere you work, you're going to have a little bit of a slowdown, and there's going to be a decrease in the number of people that are working. So I think if you plan for that, you plan for the side hustle, you plan financially to just be out of work for in archaeology for four to five months, you'll be a much happier person because you know it's coming. And, and honestly, uh, I, I've always told people too, don't let it happen to you. Um, like if you're, if you're working, 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 and you're on some field project that's supposed to go into the end of December, um, and then the end of December hits and they lay you off, and you didn't plan, you know, you, you were just hoping something else would come along, but now it's the middle of winter and no, literally nobody's going to hire you. You're totally screwed. But if you, if you say, listen, November 15th, whatever day, maybe Thanksgiving, if you want to say that, um, I am going to stop working for the winter. That's my goal. That's where I'm going to hit my target. And then I'm going to move on and uh, I'll pick back up looking for work in February or March or whatever time frame suits, your, um, suits your, your needs. But you have to plan for that. And that's what we're going to talk about now is, the, is what can you do to make up for that four or five months of lost income. Uh, I'll just say right off the bat, one of the first things you can do is save money. That might be hard if you aren't making a lot of money. I understand that. But it is one of the first and easiest things you can try to do is make your finances a little more efficient and and try to try to put some money away. Again, probably impossible for a lot of people, but not as impossible if you think, if you really look at it. And you, you have to first know how much money it takes you to live over the winter. And then that's your target. Maybe shoot for 20, 30% over that and then go with that. So let's hear some side hustle ideas. Uh, uh, Bill, I think you've got some some good stuff. Um, Steven, I think we bowled right over your uh, your comment, it looks like. <laughs> but uh, um, Bill, why don't you talk about what can, what can, some, what can people do to, uh, to accommodate that uh, loss of income over the winter or throughout the year as they're just looking for work? Yeah, sure, no problem. I think the fir- you hinted on a very important part. You need to have a, a pretty good idea of what you want your money to do and what you need it to do, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of that relies on um, having an understanding of where you want your life to go and what kind of a life you want to live. And then also understanding that um, uh, joining the sharing economy, which is some they're, they're, you know, I guess they've, it's pretty much the way the economy has actually always worked, but now they've coined a new term, the sharing economy, uh, is really just creating partnerships with other people, basically helping them get things done that they need done for their business and in the meantime, you get paid, right? So <clears throat> addressing problems that maybe exist or holes or niches, that's a good way to uh, start off on uh, thinking of a side hustle, right? Because nobody is going to pay you to uh, read and listen to books unless you figure out some kind of a way for your reading and listening to books to be something that someone else needs, right? <laughs> right. So, yeah, you know, you can um, you can save. That's the, You know, you probably actually should be saving any which way. I mean, that's just, it makes a lot of sense to save a little bit of your money, at least 10% and mm-hmm. move beyond that. If you can't do that because your bills are too high, that might be one of the other reasons you would want to start a side hustle to bring those bills down. Right. So if you've got a car payment or, uh, you know, student loans, we all have student loans, right? If there's a way for you to figure out some kind of a side hustle that covers that so that you don't have to spend any of your main income on that, then, you know, maybe that's a strategy for you to be able to save. Um, and then, like I alluded to earlier, there's really two kinds of ways that you can do a side hustle. You can um, something that takes your physical effort. I mean, all side, even passive income is going to take some kind of effort. You have to do something in order to get money back. They don't just pay you to think and imagine, and then you know you get some money, right? So, if you're thinking that you're going to be able to just chill out and binge watch some Netflix, and then money's going to start pouring in. Unless you're one of the families that's in the Nielsen ratings thing, you're not going to get paid for just watching TV. So you have to do something. There's some kind of action or activity that you're going to end up having to do in order to get the money. Mm-hmm. Now, that can be an actual physical task, a job. Like I mentioned, uh, freelancing, which is selling your services. So if you know how to do uh, document editing, you'd be amazed at how many you know flyers and um, – uh, advertisements and emails, sales letters that all need to be edited. If you know how to do that, then that's definitely something that companies will pay for. Uh, if you know GIS services or any kind of graphic design or something like that, that's definitely something that people will pay you for. Uh, if you uh, 
can can do any kind of like consulting, any kind of help. A lot of times companies just need help from someone who has been there and has done that, right? So even students who maybe don't have so much money or so much time, there's ways that you can maybe help local students organize their time. If you finished a graduate studies program, there's a lot of different stuff you can do to help reduce stress or help them through the process. Um, like I said, if you partner with the university, maybe you could be one of the advisors or consultants that helps them with their graduate students. I mean, mm -hmm. there's no end to the amount of things that you can think of, but my favorite one is to create something that's sold online. So uh, e-products, it's a super crowded market because there's um, so many different people creating all kinds of stuff of varying quality. But uh, if you can figure out some kind of a way to make something that others will want to pay for on the internet, that's probably one of the um, uh, best ways to create residual income. Mm -hmm. Now, the other thing about the side hustle, the reason why it's not your main hustle is because it's not covering all your bills, right? So uh, it starts off as something to just supplement your income, and then it's really up to you whether you want to increase the scale or uh, build it into something bigger or uh, replace your income. So there's, uh, I, I created a long bibliography of uh, tools and, and references that people can download as a um, PDF. And a lot of those books talk about ultimately getting out of the game. So either you're going to build your side hustle into something that ultimately replaces your income, or you're going to use that plus your main, um, your main income, and then living a, a frugal uh, lifestyle to just be able to retire on less money, or just retire earlier or something like that. So, you know, there. There's a lot of different avenues you can go down as far as side hustle, but the, the only thing that they all have in common is somebody did something. Mm -hmm. So no, you don't just sit there and get money. You've decided that you're going to act. You are going to do something about your situation in life, and you've decided that some kind of a side hustle is what you're going to do. Yeah, it, I want to touch on, uh, before we go to Stephen, I want to touch on some of the online stuff you mentioned, um, and I'll have links for these in the in the show notes, but... Upwork is a good one. A lot of people seem to be getting into coding and figuring coding out. And I know Upwork is, um, uh, and there's other services like Upwork, but at Codify, we're using Upwork for, for coding right now. And what that means is, uh, you know, people put up jobs and they search for people that have listed their profile on these services. And they say, I know how to do this, this, and this. And then they bid on the job and uh, they get it. And it's a small task. It might only take them a couple hours. It might take them a few days, but they get whatever they said they would do the job for. Um, and you can do that from anywhere. If you have a laptop and an internet connection, which most people probably do, you can do that. Um, there's another one, I think it's called Fiverr, but I will look this up afterwards and get the, the thing in there. But that's really for all tasks. Um, you can say, I need, you know, I need flyers folded or something like that and send them to them and they'll fold them and send them back. <laughs> I mean, it's just like stupid things like that. But it's stuff you can do to help make, make extra money. Um, so uh, Stephen had a comment first, so let's go to Stephen. Uh, yeah, um, and, and this is kind of going, well, partly way back to uh, when you were starting off the segment, but um, kind of the attitude that I like to carry into work is that there are no real jobs. There are only projects. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it kind of helps to emphasize the limited term, even if you don't think you're limited term, that, you know, all, all positions end, you know, people move on, maybe you move up, maybe you quit, maybe, you know, you get, you get let, laid off because the market's doing really poorly. Um, but th there is never a position that will last forever. You know, at, at the least, you're going to want to retire in 40 years or 20 years or whatever. Right. That going in, and and going going into your job knowing that it's short term, um, even though that short term might be fifteen years, helps you to think about other options. Um, and and in addition to the stuff that Bill was talking about, and Bill has a lot of great uh, you know great examples. Um, I, I would say that when I'm working, I'm not necessarily doing things that pull in other money, but I am doing things that are kind of laying the seeds for potentially future work mm -hmm. that, you know, that, that includes, you know, being visible, being active, networking, all, all that usual stuff that we talk about every single podcast. 
but but also you know like one of my favorite pastimes is I try to learn a new skill by watching like a YouTube video on, on Saturday. And it, I mean, that sounds really stupid and it is kind of stupid, but sitting around learning Python for 15 minutes at a time on a week, you know, and then you end up at a job and you're like, Oh, I can do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and likewise, uh, you know, so when your position does end, you know, and I don't particularly like the term leveling up. Um, <laughs> But, you know, I mean, but the concept similar is that you are always gaining more skills, gaining more mm-hmm. experience beyond, you know, your immediate job. Right. Um, because all these things become more and more um, applicable to different situations that can arise within your positions. And, yeah. and to that end, um, I would say don't be afraid to get other quote unquote, permanent job, um, you know, outside of archaeology. Mm-hmm. Like if, if your, if your thing is doing GIS and a permanent GIS position shows up and you want to do it, um, it, you know, by all means, jump on it, um, go ahead and take it. And, and even if you want to, you know, keep your hand in, in archaeology, there are other ways of doing that. Yeah. And while you're doing the GIS stuff, you are expanding your, your, exposure and experience within gis mm-hmm. and you know if such a time comes when you end up getting back into the you know the paid archaeology position you can leverage that towards you know leverage, leverage your skill towards those positions yeah um, and 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 you know and find out just how amateurish most of us are when it comes to mapping <laughs> yeah um, yeah definitely I, I, I I also have a comment about um, like Fiverr and stuff like that, but I think Doug does as well, and he might be uh, a little bit better about that. Yeah, we'll go to Doug. Uh, just real quick note on you watching YouTube videos. Um, just so everybody knows, PCS has a lot of great YouTube videos. Just saying. Anyway, um, Doug, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, um, especially with places like Fiverr or Fiverr and like the Amazon Turk and stuff like that. So we're talking about doing side hustles but don't do side hustles for a loss or for pennies on the dollar um so a lot of those things like you know uh so when i was growing up when people talked about side hustling really meant drug dealing but um (laughs) that was there's that whole paper about how drug dealers live with their mom because they actually don't make any money and a lot of these different things so like mechanical turk um amazon's that i think they you make something like between a dollar and two dollars per hour and like fiverr you know when you're bidding on these projects or the other thing you mentioned there chris is you you have to be really careful because yeah Yeah. from one perspective it's really great you know you get high quality stuff for really cheap but if you're the one doing that high quality stuff for really cheap you know you need to think about how much time you know you're putting into this and what you're getting out and i think it goes back to what Stephen was saying your side hustle doesn't necessarily need to have money coming out of it, but it needs to have some sort of goal. And, you know, you need to be able to some, some way be able to quantify it or be able to say, you know, oh, I've started selling Mary Kay and it turns out it's a pyramid scheme <laughs> and I'm making no money and it's costing me extra money to have a side yeah. hustle. Um, I think that's a huge thing is always before you start a side hustle, see at the investment and i think steven has a really good one is like some of it won't be too tangible you know you're setting up new projects maybe you're going to set up relationships that will blossom in the future but don't get sucked into doing Mm -hmm. you know all those pyramid schemes and end up working for like 50 cents on the hour or something like that right you do have to be smart about it and I'll, i'll just clarify real fast and then chris has a comment um amazon turk you know it and fiverr and things like that they're not really most of those you don't actually get paid by the hour you can average that out but you'll get paid five cents per task or something like that and their thought is if you can do this a thousand times in an hour then you made a ton of money but the reality is you probably can't so you really have to look at the fine print like doug is saying you know it's uh it's it's really important to look at the fine print and and again another thing i was saying too is don't make don't maybe Make this like your thing that you do over the winter because you will go insane doing it, um, especially for like Fiverr and Amazon Turk. But 
if you're sitting there, um, you know, eating dinner in your hotel room and you're just, you just, rather than have the TV on, maybe have the computer in front of you and, and run through a task or something like that and do that every once in a while. And you might build up actually, you know, an, a nice amount of money to start off your first, first month of the winter with. That's all I'm saying. Use a little bit of your spare time to do a handful of these things. Don't make it your sole income. Don't make it the only thing you do because you'll go literally insane. Yeah, I think one of the more I would think of it as a more traditional route for a side hustle. Uh, and this is something that I think us as anthropologists, like we have a really strong skill set in uh, in writing, in doing research and in kind of the perspective that we have. And this is a this is a point that I've shared on a lot of podcasts is that we have a unique uh perspective as anthropologists. And so freelance writing, I think, is a great way to, you know, take in some some money. And if you're gifted at writing and, you know, you have kind of a wheelhouse that you can pull from, you know, stuff that you're really strong on, you can you can write skillfully on. Uh, there are a lot of publications that will pay you anywhere from one hundred and fifty to five hundred dollars for a like two to 5,000 word think piece. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like I, I see a lot of anthropologists that are going to Forbes now uh, and they have, you know, blog columns essentially on Forbes and they're getting paid for that. And they're, you know, it's, it's a great side income as, you know, in addition to, you know, some of these anthropologists are professors or CRM professionals or, you know, just independent researchers and whatnot. Um, but you know, freelance writing, I highly recommend it. If you mm-hmm. have, you know, the, the skills and the means to just quickly and efficiently churn out some writing and you've got to think about, you know, placing a, a dollar amount on your time, you know, if you can churn out a, a two to 5,000 word think piece and, you know, minimize your efforts, then, you know, that can really be worth your time to do. Yeah. I think the only important thing is not really what you do. It's just that you do something because on the other, on the one hand, you're, you know, doing what you can to get into archaeology, but we've been pretty real about the situation in the market. So if you're not doing some kind of uh, side hustle or even thinking about it or moving into any kind of other domain that brings you some kind of income, then uh, there's a pretty strong chance you're not going to survive in archaeology because it's difficult to get those permanent positions. And not only that, when you get into those permanent positions, this outside of the box thinking or having other skills that you can add to your company's uh, bottom line or company's um, uh, schedule of offerings, that does add to the bottom line. And so you got to do something. I mean, you just cannot sit there and wait. I wish we lived in a world where we all got full time jobs with benefits, but we don't. So you cannot wait. Indeed. All right. Well, with that, we are going to end this podcast. Um, We're going to come back with uh, another show in two weeks about um, continuing on this topic because we have a lot more to say on it. Um, You guys have no idea, you listeners out there, how many comments I've had to shut down in the back chat here (laughs) just because we didn't have the time. Because I don't want to give you a two-hour long show to listen to because you should be side hustling, not listening to podcasts. But anyway, um, did I say that? I run a podcast network. Anyway, um, the point is... Uh, go out there, do something. Um, please comment on this wherever you saw it and, uh, and let us know what your side hustle is. I'd love to see what people are doing out there to, to increase their skill levels. If you don't like the term leveling up, but leveling up is what I say. Um, what are you doing to do that to make yourself better? What are you doing to make more income? And, and how are you making this work? So, all right. So we'll see you guys next time. And uh, thanks for listening. That's it for another episode of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash CRM Podcast. If you like the show and want to comment, please do. You can leave comments about this or any other episode on the website or on the iTunes page for the episode. You can also email me at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com or use the contact form on the podcast webpage. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or tweet your questions with the hashtag CRMARCpodcast or you can tag at ARCpodnet in your tweet. Please share the link to the show wherever you saw it. 
If you share CRM archaeology related items on Twitter or Facebook or anywhere else for that matter, be sure to use the hashtag CRMARC so the community can see and comment. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, you can do so on iTunes or on Stitcher Radio. You can also type the name of the podcast into your favorite podcasting app and subscribe that way. Don't forget to go over to iTunes and leave a review of the show. It helps us get noticed so more people can find our podcast and benefit from the content. Also, send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. Also, please consider donating to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Your donations help fund our bandwidth and contribute to our editing costs. Thanks to everyone for joining me this week. Thanks also to the listeners for tuning in, and we'll see you in the field. Goodbye. Adios. Bye. Bueller. <laughs> this show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and edited by Chris Sims. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.